Today's episode of Lions of Liberty is sponsored by Ammo.com. And if you've ever wanted to save money purchasing ammunition while helping a libertarian cause, well, this is your lucky day because, you see, Ammo.com is run by fans of this program, fellow liberty lovers like yourself, and they want to give back to Lions of Liberty fans by offering $20 off any order over $200. Not only that, but they will redirect 1% of every sale to a pro-freedom organization such as the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the Institute of Justice, and many more. Not only can you save money, but you can rest well knowing you are supporting a great liberty cause. So head on over to ammo.com slash lionsofliberty or just click on that link found in today's show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 374. And welcome back to Lions of Liberty, the flagship program here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, the show where I interview leaders in the libertarian movement and assorted areas each and every Monday. But that's not all, folks. No. Every single Wednesday, my good friend Brian McWilliams brings you his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land, while John Odie Odermatt wraps things up on Fridays with his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. You get all three shows for the price of one, and that is free by hitting that subscribe button on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Just click that puppy so you don't miss a thing. My guest today is a real estate investor. He is the managing principal at Cashflow Connections, a private equity group that assists investors in diversifying through recession-resistant real estate. He is also the host of the Cashflow Connections podcast. I'm very pleased to welcome Mr. Hunter Thompson. Hunter, are you ready to roar? Wow! I give you a heavy metal roar for today because I'm in the mood. All right, that was a good one. <laughs> uh, now, Hunter, as you know, I have all all sorts of different kinds of guests on the show. I, I like to bring on people to talk about philosophy or a political campaign they're working on. But sometimes I like to bring people on who can just really help my listeners in in their real life, so to speak. And what you do is you focus on recession proof investments on areas that can withstand the ebbs and flows of the business cycle, which is, of course, something many listeners of this program will be familiar with. But before we dive into all that. First things first, this is a libertarian podcast. You are a libertarian, so we're going to start right there. How did you first become interested in the ideas of liberty? How did Hunter Thompson become a libertarian? Yeah, I mean, that's it's obviously a great way to start because I think it gives you an idea of who you're dealing with. My path was very circuitous in the sense that I was raised in a, a family that had fairly traditional views. I think they may themselves would consider them to be non-traditional, but in the scheme of things, they're relatively within the typical framework. And going to public school, I basically accepted the things that I was taught. I mean, most importantly, I didn't understand the paradigm and the way that the incentive structure was set up. So I wasn't really questioning where people's incentives were aligned. As a student, if you're going to any kind of class, if you're in fifth grade and you're being taught by someone who is outwardly a socialist and they're a history teacher, I would assume that that would be the type of person that you should rely on in terms of historical frames of references, right? I mean, that makes sense to me. It's not until you get outside of that system, until you understand more about the way that entire structure is set up. Of course, 
most of the public school teachers are either left-leaning or outwardly, you know, communist or socialist. It's a government program. So it, it took a lot <laughs> of time for me to come, you know, around. But uh, the big moment for me, I was really, ex- really passionately anti-war during the Bush years. The fact that this was going on felt unbelievable to me. And I was very, very excited when Obama got elected and voted for him once. And we'll forgive you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just something that's still recovering from, obviously. And, you know, for me, the way that those promises were made, and then not only that they weren't kept, particularly with things with Guantanamo Bay and the stopping of the, the you know, just bombings and stuff like that, uh, the absolute opposite of that took place, which was horrifying. But what was far more horrifying was the complete lack of re- reaction on the political left. And that is when I started to realize this is just totally a game. It has nothing to do with principles or anything that's foundationally objective in, comes, in terms of reality. It's just a totally a sports team. And when you start looking at things from that perspective, and of course, I'm, I know a lot of your listeners are going to be heavily influenced by Ron Paul, that movement came along at the right time, particularly in 2012, when you had been completely lied to if you were following along the lines of the Democratic Party. So you know, I can go into as much detail as you want, but generally speaking, that's when I started to pursue those alternative ways of thinking. And anti-war has always been and still is my most important political leanings. I'll pretty much do anything to if we were able to achieve the anti-war you know, agenda, so to speak. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I would walk hand in hand with the, uh, you know, the the most strident socialists if they were with me on ending the wars, you know, because at that point, at least we've eliminated a, a huge welfare program and, you know, stopped mass murdering people all over the world, which, you know, would be a good thing to do. Yeah, it's just so horrifying. I kind of want to dig in there a little bit more. Uh, you know, a lot of people, I think, at that time that were enamored with Obama when he first, you know, ran for office and he seemed like he really was representing hope and change and hopefully an, an anti-war direction. But many people seem to get caught in this narrative to sort of, I guess, maybe just justify their political side at the time. This narrative that, you know, Obama really wanted to do all of those things, but it was the Republican obstructionists or it was the system or what have you that prevented him from doing so. So what, what do you think it was that was different about you or your perspective? perspective that, you know, you didn't fall into that trap. You were able to realize fairly quickly that he was just never for those things in the first place. Yeah. I mean, actually, I think that's a really good point because even hearing it with that perspective, I think there is some credence to that in the sense that the overwhelming majority of the people in government are not elected, uh, especially those that control the most power. So for for when I think about the executive branch, so to speak, really the the main thing there is international relations. And that, you know, it's just the CIA uh, driving everything, basically. And the the members of the CIA aren't typically elected. And even if they are selected by uh, people that are elected, they're so far removed from that process, it's just completely out of their control, in my opinion. So when I look at things like the surveillance and drones and secret wars and black ops, those are the things that really keep me up at night. And, you know, I, I don't know that that was, it would have gone one way or the other, regardless of who's in office. I mean, look at this. However, having said that, it has come to my attention. It's really just marketing. Uh, it's all just a PR campaign. And I would like to, <laughs> part of me wants to get to the point where I'm able to say that, you know, Donald Trump is the best president in history. And what I mean by that is the funniest 
best to make fun of <laughs> most easily. Right. I mean, that's what I want my perspective on politics to be. I can't let it go because I do think that there are some categorical differences in when it comes to international relations, when it comes to the executive branch. So in this situation with Russia, particularly in Syria, I would say that Gosh, it'd be hard to imagine that things would be better off if, if Trump did not win that election versus Hillary. And it's kind of embarrassing to even mention that, especially in a program like this. But it's, um, it's something that I struggle with. You know, it's, it's like the, some of these changes are life and death for hundreds of thousands of people. And so, you know, it's, it's a weird position to be in. I'm, I'm not a Trump supporter and never voted for him nor ever will. But, you know, it's something to ponder. It's, it's an interesting thing. Sure. And clearly, I mean, Trump is is no peacenik per se, but I mean, it's a fair point. If even th- one less country is bombed because exactly. of because uh, of a certain president, I mean, how many people's lives are, are affected by that? Uh, exactly. At the same time, you know, he's supporting this, this this war in Yemen that seems to only be getting worse and worse and worse. And you know, at the end of the day, this is a debate that libertarians continue to have. I actually hosted a debate between uh, Walter Block on, on Robert Wenzel for close to an hour all about this Trump issue as it relates to libertarian ideas. And it, it really can go in different directions depending you know depending on your perspective but i do want to get into this real estate issue and before we dig into kind of the specifics of what you do at your firm uh, i'm kind of curious where along this path did you first get involved in real estate like how did that line up with the the changing political beliefs you had were you interested in real estate before your political beliefs sort of took shape or did this kind of happen along the way yeah and so you know it's one of those things where things all kind of start happening at the same time as long as you're outside of academia right because academia is so controlled it's so unnatural that you're not really allowed to flourish educationally or professionally or as an entrepreneur. So as soon as I got out of that position, right around the time that the United States suffered from the 2008 crash, we can go into the causes of that some other time. But the point was, I wasn't really awoken to those underlying situations. I just knew that one of the main rules of investing was to invest significantly when, quote, blood is in the streets. And I saw the blood in the streets and I was very drawn to financial assets. I'm just, you know, not surprisingly to any of your listeners, very counter cyclical in nature and always willing to uh, go left when people are looking right, sometimes to a fault, but most of the time not. So when that happened, I jumped into stocks and bonds because that's what I was most familiar with. As I started learning more about the financial sector and as I started analyzing that decision, I started to realize that number one, most of the reason people invest is to create passive income for their retirement. Uh, Most importantly, to be able to pay off their expenses by their passive income. And I looked at the stock market and realized there's a very indirect route to accomplish that very simple goal. I mean, you have to have a massive portfolio to be able to accomplish that. And as I was starting to realize that, something happened in the economy which really changed my life. In 2010, Most people don't talk about this, but for me, this is a major moment. The European markets basically experienced what the United States markets experienced. Uh, Their central banks froze up. There's lack of liquidity in the marketplace, and it caused unbelievable volatility in the US markets. And I remember watching CNBC, and they were talking about the Greece bond yields. And they were saying if the 10-year bonds stayed below 7%, that the S&P 500 was going to be fine. But if it went above 7%, the S&P 500 was going to collapse. And I was thinking... <laughs> that, that's really scary that could, it could all hinge on, on, on a percentage point over a certain amount here or there. Exactly. And let alone it being a percentage point, we're talking about the Greece 10-year bond yields. Like, how was I supposed to accurately prepare for that? How was I supposed to predict that as being a potential challenge or risk of the investments I was making? 
And so that's when I really started to, to understand that in order to actually conduct accurate due diligence, the investment vehicles have to be simple enough so that you're not completely mitigated. You're not correlated with all this other nonsense uh, that the governments are involved in or otherwise. Sure. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you know, we can try to ride these booms and busts and try to make the right investments and, and try to ride these waves. But but we really can't predict where they're going to go or when there's going to be a crash or when there's going to be a boom. We just know that the cycle, at least under our current system, is going to continue as long as we have a, an economy that is largely manipulated by the Federal Reserve. So under that logic, the only way to really invest soundly is to try to find investments like you have that aren't really hurt too much by these ebbs or you know by these ups and downs of the market and uh, before we dig into this you know too deeply you know not everyone out there a lot of people of course that listen to the show are going to be very familiar with a lot of economic ideas a lot a lot about the austrian business cycle but for anybody who's not an expert you know not everybody's going to be reading human action or man economy and state i just really simply what is the most important thing that people need to know about boom bust cycles about the business cycle before they think about investing in real estate or really in anything for that matter well, I mean, first of all, I have to give a plug to some of those books you just mentioned. I mean, Sorry. one of the beautiful thing about libertarianism and, and maybe the most beautiful thing is the actual literature that's been written on the topic and by some of the thought leaders in the space. I don't know that it's unbelievable how compelling some of these authors are out there, particularly guys like Rothbard and Hop. I mean, it's just the way to communicate these complex ideas in ways that make things compelling. I know people that never had an interest in economics until they were exposed to Austrian, the Austrian school, because it's such an interesting perspective that ties in so well with principles. Now, having said that, the easiest way to look at things, regardless of your perspective on Austrian versus anything else, is that everything is cyclical. And regardless of the causes of these, it's really important to understand that. When it comes to the actual market cycle, one of the main arguments is that the Federal Reserve, through suppressing interest rates, therefore causes asset prices to increase. The cost of borrowing money is lower. Therefore, people are more incentivized to borrow money. They're more incentivized to borrow and, and then increase their risk profile. And there's a million things we can go to about that. I mean, one of the problems with suppressing interest rates is that one of the easiest ways outside of poverty is, is through investments and savings. But the problem is when you have an interest rate market and a, a situation where you do not get a return on your investment because of uh, suppressed interest rates, your incentive then inverts. And when you have inflation, your incentive is actually to spend money. So you're taking away that one vehicle, the most important vehicle of getting people out of poverty through central planning. And so when I look at all that, I realize the way that the political system is set up they're always set up to hyperinflate. And that is why we see this so frequently with currencies across of history, because that is where the political system is set up. No one, almost no one, uh, we have, there's a couple of examples of this, but they're very rare, um, is incentivized to say, look, I'm going to be the one that steps in and says, we're actually going to uh, facilitate a recession so that we can get back to more, a normal situation. Almost everything is incentivized to smash down interest rates, keep asset prices high in order to be reelected. And so this is why we see on a global scale, the economists all around the world realize this and interest rates all over the place are near zero levels or sometimes are negative. And I don't think this changes anytime soon. I'm talking like 10, 20, 30 years. This is like the new normal as far as I'm concerned. Now, so you're, you're not too fooled by, you know, recent slight, you know, uh, raises in, in interest rates then. 
Well, not in terms of looking at things on a historical perspective. I mean, if if this is a question that comes up often, what does it look like if interest rates go to 7%, which is what most people think are normal levels? And the answer is catastrophe globally. So if you have a political system that's set up like that, is that what's going to happen? I mean, these interest rates are centrally planned. Someone just has to go into a meeting and say, I got a good idea. We should see, we should make that happen. I think what's much more likely is a situation similar to what we have in Japan, where you have negative interest rates uh, for decades and you have very, very low economic growth and you have uh, you know, eventually a negative population growth. Uh, I'm sorry to say, but I, I think that the, the problems that Japan is facing are very similar to what the United States will be facing for a lot of the same reasons. One being, you know, they control their own currency and therefore buy a lot of their debt, which is how interest rates remain low. So, and there's many people that can talk about this with a lot more knowledge, but looking at it from a big picture, I don't think it's going to be overcomable. Can you just clarify, because it's such a difficult concept, such a ridiculous concept to really wrap your head around. So a negative interest rate, that's essentially, is this essentially meaning people have to pay the bank for the privileges of keeping their money there? Yes, exactly. And <laughs> Because that sounds insane. Well, it's insane. And it's also... Because your mattress sounds literally like a better option at that point. A hundred percent. What's even more compelling or more interesting is that if you found out that one of your buddies was doing that, you'd be like, wow, that's, that's crazy, but that's a unique situation. It's nothing can be further from the truth. It's trillions and trillions of dollars out there. They're looking for investments that have decided that those are the types of investments that they should be making. And so that's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about what I do, because I want to open up the ability for investors to have access to institutional quality deals that previously a DECA sent to millionaires only had access to for their own personal portfolio. And that's something that requires a pseudo-religious change in perspectives. So it's something that's hard to do. But I find it very rewarding because when people realize that they then have the keys to the castle, so to speak, their financial perspective on the future can change significantly. And just to tie that in real quick with kind of my perspective on investing, a lot of people, probably many that you've talked to, economists that follow a lot of the same data that I follow, they take this data to come up with very, what I would consider to be ultra-conservative investment theses that I think end up being so conservative that they're actually not conservative. So what I'm talking about is if you're, I'll give you a couple of data points I think are compelling. Number one, there's 51% of the wage earners in the US are making less than $30,000 a year. That's unbelievable, but very true. 38% are making less than $20,000 a year of all the wage earners in the United States. As you know, there are many baby boomers, about 10,000 of them hitting the age of retirement, which is 65 every single day. Many of them are relying on social security as a source of income. I know that this is something that a lot of people talk about. Oh, this is a Ponzi scheme. I completely agree, et cetera. The challenge is it doesn't even have to be a Ponzi scheme to be economically unviable. The average social security check is $1,200 a month or so, and the average two-bedroom apartment rents for about $1,200 a month. So it's just not possible to rely on social security in its current state. Now, those are some of the data points that like guys like Peter Schiff will bring up, and I think really rightfully so, but I'm taking that same data and saying, this is a great argument for investing in things like mobile home parks, where you can get the benefits that rely on low interest rates. You can get inexpensive financing, but you can also invest in real estate, which appreciates and provides significant cash flow and therefore overall um, higher return profile rather than gold or something like that. 
And so that's where I play in the space, sending that same data and building a thesis around the quote, recession resistant real estate assets, uh, which I think are, are phenomenal and really hard to debunk those, those investments. Hey guys, I want to take a quick break to let you know about our longest time sponsor, Health Excellence Plus. This is an incredible alternative to traditional health insurance that will help you take control of the cost of your medical care. With rising costs of medical care and health insurance, Americans are looking for a cost-effective and efficient way to provide financially for the medical needs of their family that also complies with the Affordable Care Act. Whatever the goals and motivation behind the law, the net result has been neither affordable nor improved access to care. Whether you want to take back control of your own health care and related costs, or you want someone new to manage them for you, or you're somewhere in between, Health Excellence Plus has a solution for you. Through an innovative layering of tools and technologies, Health Excellence Plus finds members the best care for the best price. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com health or head directly to our affiliate link at lions.mymt.com pb.com that's lions.m as in mary y as in yes m as in mary again p as in pool b as in boy.com yeah, and you mentioned the mobile home parks there and that, i know that's one of the big strategies you promote so what is it about the situation with mobile home parks specifically that creates such an opportunity and specifically a recession-proof opportunity Yeah. So I think that a big part of it is number one, the worse the economy does, the more demand there is for affordable housing. So it's one of those things that's counter cyclical by nature, but then there's a lot of other important pieces of the asset class, which are just really investor favorable. So one of them is that governments have basically banned the development of new mobile home parks. So you have all this coming demand with the baby boomer situation, these low incomes that are completely increasing. And you have, and when you say governments, you just mean like governments more on the, the state and local level, or is there any federal involvement here? Yeah, good question. It's almost every major municipality, anyone that you would be relatively interested in investing near is has a memorandum against the, the development of new mobile home parks. So every is that just because they're seen as like, you know, lower class or I mean, I, what, what's the reasoning behind that? A hundred percent, but also because the tax revenue is not quite the same as something like a multifamily. Uh, it always comes back to the money. A hundred percent. So you literally have them decreasing every year. It's a very rare situation as an investor to be able to invest in something where the demand is increasing and the supply is literally decreasing. Uh, it's not natural, of course, because it's backed by the power of the state. But as an investor, I'm, I'm willing to take advantage of that. So that, that's one. Uh, another thing, just real quick, is a lot of people in real estate, you know, they teach that one of the main goals of an owner is to have the tenants treat the properties like they own it. And it helps for a lot of reasons. Well, the mobile home park business, we just own the lot and the tenants own the mobile home itself. And this helps tremendously with things like pride of ownership and you don't, you're not offering that much amenities. Therefore, the expense ratios is much lower. And so you don't have, you have to this, deal with, you know, plumbing issues or any of that upkeep that you would have on a, you know, more traditional uh, real estate investment. Exactly. And again, this is all makes sense from a, a thesis. But when it comes to operating it, that's what it's all really about. But you know, that's where we fit in. We, we have those relationships and that's how we help investors invest. What are some other strategies that you dig into you know, outside of just the, the mobile home parks? Well, I really like self-storage as well. And I think mobile home parks, I think it's pretty easy to explain. With self-storage, it's similar though, not as obvious. So people use the product of self-storage when they're going through some kind of transitional period. A lot of those can be brought in by recessions. 
So people downsizing or getting new jobs, having to change jobs, kids moving home from college, all of those are more common during recessions and all of them drive demand for self-storage. And so you have, again, a very an industry that's riddled with mismanagement. There's a lot of ways to add value to self-storage facilities just because you can. they're basically like businesses rather than real estate. So you can do things like add relationships with truck rental companies where we can get trucks that are not owned by us, just owned by another company. We rent out those trucks to tenants when they're moving in and out, and we get a commission for facilitating the transaction. That alone can generate a significant amount of income on a monthly basis. And looking at things on a risk-adjusted basis, we're not buying the trucks. We're not maintaining your trucks. It's just a matter of leveraging that relationship. So those are some of the reasons that I really like the asset class. Both the recession-resistant component and the complexities allow for operational experience to really outcompete the competition. I'm curious about your thoughts on sort of more traditional real estate investments that people have done over the years, like flipping houses or, you know, buying properties to, to use as just, you know, more long-term rental properties. Or I know a lot of people are buying properties and turning them into Airbnbs right now. Uh, do you see those methods as being, you know, inferior or, you know, riskier than, you know, the methods that you're describing? Yeah. I mean, it just depends on the market cycle. So I'm a full-time investor, right? And, and almost all of my portfolios in real estate. And I'm a huge proponent of commercial real estate in general. So I think at the right timing of the market, uh, multifamily is a great investment. I personally don't own any right now, but I love the investment vehicle because I do think that owning a home has become less and less popular, at least in the current state of the economy. Short-term rentals, I think are a great play right now. There's obviously some risk there. One of the things that a lot of the Austrians are really a proponent of, but they don't usually focus on real estate. So it's not really, the knot's not really tied. The challenge with short-term rentals is that because it's a new thing, the access to debt, which is the most important determiner of all financial assets, is not there. So when things go sideways, if there's a correction, the access to that debt, the number of people willing to lend on that type of asset just completely disappears. And I really do like that tie-in with the Austrian school because, again, the whole point of the business cycle is about interest rates. That is on borrowed money. In real estate, the majority of each purchase is typically debt. So it's just a really nice tie-in with you know the way that I think about things and the way that the, the business cycle plays a role in my investment strategies. So Hunter, if I know my my average listener like I think I do, a lot of them are listening to you right now and maybe doing a lot of head nodding, maybe thinking that a lot of what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Uh, they're certainly understanding the logic of it, the logic of why you know investing in something like a mobile home park or a self storage unit, you know, would be recession proof, be a, a good investment. But they're probably also thinking, well, how do I get involved in this? Like, I don't have money, the money to buy a mobile home park. I don't have the money to buy a self storage, you know, or already functioning business. How can the regular sort of the regular person here who's working, working, you know, working their job, maybe they have some savings, but not a ton of money that they can just put into an investment. What's the first step for someone like that to take into trying to get into, you know, start just starting to create a portfolio like this. Totally. And I think that, you know, the libertarian community, they, they literally let themselves think that question for like three minutes and then they immediately sure. jump to <laughs> how am I going to get screwed? Because this is clearly like, that's, that's the libertarian way. It's like, oh, this sounds good. And I'm sure this is completely made up. Where's the worst case scenario? That's probably what's going to happen. Correct. So that is totally valid. So here's what I would do if I was in that situation slow down and really focus on education because there has been some significant changes in the world of investments that have taken place, particularly over the last six years, that allow for accredited investors to invest in these types of opportunities. And 
with that change, that timing, the jobs act changes that and allow people to invest in these types of things. But after that change, we've also had this once in a lifetime run up of prices. So what does that mean? Virtually everyone that's in this business has a great track record. And so you have to be extremely cautious and knowledgeable about who to make a bet on. And that is really where, you know, that's where our company comes in. So if you're interested in looking at these investments, I would really focus on education and and learning. There's so much great, like think about the amount of economics that you've taught from your podcast. That was not available 10 years ago. People may have to spend years getting uh, just conversations with random people to acquire the type of knowledge that they could listen to and listen to 10 episodes of your show. And so there are other outsour- there's resources out there that are similar to that that focus on real estate. So we have a podcast, for example, the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast, where I've had several people who have half a billion dollars, $1.5 billion under management. We come and have a 45-minute conversation about some of the most detail-oriented and sophisticated topics in the business. You can learn so much from just listening. Um, once you start to get a feel for that, then you know it's about taking action. But the action that you should take now is learning and, and getting familiar with the, the options out there. Well, that certainly makes sense. I mean, and I don't think you would ever advocate or any, really anyone you should listen to would ever advocate just blindly investing in certain areas because someone told you to and just put your money in and don't worry about it. You have to really be knowledgeable about whatever you're doing with your money uh, if you're going to make you know wise decisions. I guess I'm kind of curious now, like if someone has started that education process, like how realistic is it for someone that might not have a ton of capital to start investing? Can someone that just say has 5,010 thousand dollars is there ways for them to start investing in these sort of areas without you know without having a huge stash of capital to really go all in 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 a way like some larger investors might yeah absolutely and i think that you know if you google uh, crowdfunding websites you'll start to get a sense and i do suggest people look into this crowdfunding websites there's a big variety of them out there and with different incentive structures and different levels of sophistication and the, the really the problem is some of them operate like craigslist for real estate it's just a website that says, click here to invest now. But you can you know, look up some of these companies and you'll start to find opportunities that have $1,000, $5,000 minimums. Um, that's not the market that my company caters towards, but those opportunities are out there. Again, you would want to review those websites, uh, look at some of the questions that you want to ask them and, and think about that and really start to compare the, the spectrum. And once you start to get a sense for that, maybe start uh, making those investments in those investment sizes. Well, Hunter, I think the main thing you've emphasized throughout this, which I, I think really adds to your credibility as far as I'm concerned, is really emphasizing the educational aspect, really understanding, A, hopefully on a surface level, just understanding business cycles, how the Federal Reserve manipulates markets, manipulates interest rates, and that sort of thing. But then before you invest, to really dig in and really know what you're doing. Don't just throw money at somebody that because they sound good on a podcast. <laughs> you know, Really do your own research. And, and But there are ways that you can start investing in and, and use this sort of knowledge to to build your own portfolio in a way that makes sense for you and, and, and you know a way that is you're comfortable with doing with with you know the amount of assets that you might have. So uh, Hunter, I really appreciate the time. I appreciate you coming on and sharing these ideas with us. Uh, before I let you go, feel free to plug away on anything and everything you got going on. Um, I know you've got the real estate stuff and the podcast. Obviously, you'd uh, obviously one place people should start is your podcast to get you know a lot of knowledge from from all the guests that you have coming on. Uh, but feel free to plug away on anything else you'd recommend people. Uh, use to dive into investing and start building a portfolio, start protecting themselves from the inevitable booms and busts. 
Yeah, sure. And again, before I do, I just want to thank you again for having the opportunity. It's one of those things where absolutely, I think that probably a lot of your listeners consider themselves anarcho-capitalists. I, I recently was at a speech. I think that's safe to say. <laughs> yeah. I was at a speech with uh, Doug Casey where he said, listen, we got the anarcho thing down. That's covered. We need to focus on the capitalist thing. And that is really part of why I love <laughs> coming on shows like this, because it's a lot more fun to share ideas that are really radical if you've got a lot of cash flow. And so that's where I, I like sharing those opportunities with investors because that's going to make the movement a little bit more easy to listen to. And if it doesn't work, well, you still be wealthy. <laughs> so you can learn more about my company by going to cashflowconnections.com. I mentioned the podcast already. If you do want to shoot me an email, I'll shoot you a couple of free eBooks. Uh, one will be about self-storage and that is at info at cashflowconnections.com. My assistant will shoot you an eBook uh, just a moment. All right, Hunter Thompson, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your ideas with our audience. Really appreciate all the work you're doing. Keep up that great work. Keep on roaring. Thanks again, man. Appreciate it. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Hunter Thompson. Always great to connect with libertarians in various walks of life and get their ideas on certain subjects, but through that libertarian lens. And that's what I wanted to do today with Hunter Thompson. I think he's got really some interesting ideas. And I uh, really, what I try to do here is give you guys tools uh, in addition to providing you interviews you know, with on libertarian philosophy or about political campaigns. I also want you to provide with you some realistic tools that you can actually apply in your real life. And whether you go down a certain investment path one way or another, you really should have different ways that you can diversify yourself so that you are protected in what is inevitably going to be another bust at some point and another boom again. And I don't have all the answers, but there's a lot of other people out there that maybe are a little bit smarter than me that do. That's what I was hoping to accomplish today. And pretty soon I'm going to have a hell of a conversation. I already had it actually uh, with Gene Epstein. Now, I don't know if you guys saw, but he did a, a amazing debate. Well, he was mostly amazing in it anyway, but it was a debate on socialism versus capitalism put on by the Soho Forum, which he is, of course, the director of. And uh, he debated this guy, Bashkar Sankara of the Jacobin Institute, who was representing the ideals of socialism. And Gene was just so passionate in that debate that I had to have him on the show to break down every single objection that I could gather from fans of this show. I took a lot of commentary from people in the Lions of Liberty Forum. That is, of course, our public Facebook group. You can get on in there. Just answer a simple question about how you found the show to make sure you're not a spam bot and we'll get you right in to join the conversation. But I basically collated all of those ideas, all those objections uh, against capitalism and uh, points for socialism that people have heard about there. Tossed them all at Gene Epstein, and we took about an hour breaking all of that down. It's a hell of an interview. You're going to hear that one in two weeks, uh, because next week is going to be our Thanksgiving special with our friends at Blast Off with Johnny Rocket and Raylene Lightheart. But if you are a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride, if you are one of our supporters on Patreon, you can hear that interview right now. Yes, my friends, that's what we call a tease and plug. <laughs> so please do head over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Please do consider joining the over 100 other members of the Lions of Liberty Pride who send us their hard-earned ducats each and every month to help support this show, the show that we bring you for absolutely free three days per week. But we toss you tons of extra content for as little as $5 a month, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, the League of Liberty podcast with my friend Chris Spangle of We Are Libertarians, Johnny Adams of Blast Off, the aforementioned, and Roger Paxson of 
the Lava Flow podcast. We all gather together about once every, well, it's been about more every six weeks or so lately, but uh, we bring you so much extra content for as little as $5 a month. You really you really can't afford not to do it. That's all I can really say. And you get to know you're supporting your great friends in Liberty over here at Lions of Liberty. So please do consider that. In the meantime, be sure to tune in to Brian this coming Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty. And don't forget to tune in to John on Friday as he hits you with another inspiring story on his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Until next time, folks, live long and live free.